This is the SFF Audio Podcast. This is Jenny. This is Tamahome. And I'm Jesse. And today we are discussing five of the seven Nebula-nominated short stories, just the five that were in audio. Yes. The other two don't deserve mentioning since they have no version. <laughs> Sorry. Well, if we're doing that, then we should also not talk about the uh, Clark's World one because it was so quiet. That's I couldn't I had to use headphones to listen to that one uh, to, to if, really if, concentrate. If we're going by... Uh, uh, and I think it actually makes a big difference um, for voters... I think a lot of people like audiobooks um, by just volume alone. Well, the two ones that weren't podcast aren't going to win. And the one that was very, very quiet isn't going to win. So it's just a matter of whether Lightspeed wins or um, Escape Pod. And uh, Podcastle, Escape Pod, Lightspeed, those are all good, good, good and loud. Oh, I didn't notice a difference. My iPhone must kind of regulate the sound or something. Uh, you wear earbuds? No, I would have just listened to it plain, but wow, I yeah. didn't notice. <laughs> On my map, map, my MacBook, I could really the um, the Clark's World one was kind of quiet, and th- their their web page kind of annoys me. Like the audio is in a different spot than the uh, text, so you have to kind of dig around. Mm. I, I said that in the post too. Mm. Well, the, there's uh, if we're talking more annoyance. Um, <laughs> The the fake uh, I'm quitting the show uh, because it was April Fools. Doesn't oh yeah, that so well. Doesn't work so well <laughs> on podcasts because what? Like uh, six months later, people are going to still be listening to it, and they say right. April Fools. Oh, not so funny. I guess yeah, it was and not April being first. a listener to her in general, like I, you know, I don't listen to that one regularly, so I was kind of confused, but. Other than that, I guess we could we could talk about that story uh, as uh, what I heard of it. <laughs> oh sure, it was actually you know I've read two of these in print in the uh, best science fiction fantasy of 2011 book that just recently came out. So I had read that one in print before I listened to it. That one in the Paper Menagerie. But the Cartographer Wasp and the Anarchist Bees is my favorite. I honestly didn't hear enough of it to get a really good sense of what was going on. I, I got little snippets in here and there when there wasn't like uh, regular noise around me. Weird. But but um, it, was it like a? Were they really aliens, or, or they were they <laughs> just like bees and wasps on Earth and no, seeing it from their perspective? She's considering it science fiction. I went back and read a little bit about it. She's actually a student at Princeton, Mm -hmm. and she does beekeeping on the side, and I think she's taken a class in it, Mm -hmm. and she'd read these articles about how bees interact with each other, so she's calling it science fiction because it's science. Right. It's based on the science idea, so no aliens. So it's anthropomorphic fiction, in a way. Sure. Because it's a fable like Charlotte's Web. It actually reminds me the most of Animal Farm with the yeah, yeah. Re- the repeating cultures that just perpetuate, only it's for anarchy instead of for... Yeah, that, yeah. That uh, uh, what I heard of it, it sounded really interesting. Uh, there yeah. was some um, 
the one thing I was thinking of, you know, the, where they take the, uh, it's the bees take the wasps or the wasps take the bees? Which one, which, which was what? Well, the wasps enslave the bees, but right. the bees are anarchists by nature, so. <laughs> okay. okay. It's inheritable. The wasps, right. are, the wasps are nerdy map makers. <laughs> well, uh, they're, but they're domineering too. Yeah. So. Right. And they've got a queen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so. And they raise the uh, baby bees as their own. Yeah. To yeah. train them in their ways, but they're more educated than the bees. So that that raising and training of uh, enemies, you know, as a as a taxation, that actually is historical. So I don't know if that uh, happens in real bee bees uh, and wasps. Well, I have no idea. It would be cool if it was, but that that's uh, the Ottoman what the Ottoman Empire did. They had uh, the king would invade or the emperor would invade uh, some place and. Mm-hmm he would take the resultant lands and levy a tax upon the people uh, of of people. And those uh, people became the workers for that emperor and uh, were called, uh, this is called, they're called Janissaries. Hmm. Uh, so I, I like stuff that incorporates historical things. I, I, maybe I should just read the print version. or Yeah, I think you'd like it. I also really liked just the language itself. It reminded me kind of of Catherine Valente, especially the Palimpsest book where all of the people end up with maps on their bodies. And this one had maps inside the wasp hives. So Mm -hmm. it's a nice little parallel there too. And uh, I've been noticing lately the word thrum and thrumming in almost everything I read. (laughs) And it's in this story too. So it just kind of made me laugh. The thrumming of their wings. Good word. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great word. It's very descriptive. I noticed when people say quotidian, but they didn't say that in this story. <laughs> it's coming up a lot, though. Yeah. Mm. Especially in blog posts. Hmm. Yeah, that, that this, I, I guess I was a little confused by it. Uh, yeah, it's very literary, so it's more, I think it's a more a Jenny story than a Tam story. <laughs> yeah. It's totally my kind of story. Well, uh, well I, I, I want to know what a Tam story is, but I, I think I probably could figure it out. Um, like a more straightforward, like like movie in your mind type story. Okay. Not not very allegorical or. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah. I guess with flowery was. language. I, I I thought it might have been literal. Just I yeah. I'm like straining to hear it. So, <laughs> um, it was unfortunate, but yeah, that's it. Sounds good. So, so what's the what political message of the B story? Um, that revolution I, will always happen against the oppressor. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, is it allegorical? So. I thought so. I mean, there's a there's a lot about colonization and um, people always rising up, you know, always in in secret, passing it down between generations. Okay. It's definitely there. And well, I mean, you had that one bee who had the little baby bee nursery hidden in her library, right? And she'd whisper the secrets at night to her bees, and then they passed it on and passed it on and passed it on. They thrum the the secrets. (laughs) I think at the end they find the secret document and they start passing it around. Is that what happened? Yeah, and the funny thing is that the only reason they can even pass it on is because the wasps taught them how to write, right? So it's almost like they they seeded their own destruction by spreading the knowledge. Yeah, and that's why it makes me think so much of animal farming. Because in animal farm, you know, no, no matter who became in control, they became these terrible tyrant leaders. 
and this is kind of the opposite. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, nice. it's, it's a mini an- mini animal farm in both respects. <laughs> it's short and it's small, small scale. <laughs> For some reason, as a kid, I insisted that we rent Animal Farm, and the only way we can rent it is the actual film. So we actually rented oh. a projector and the film and watched it in our house. Wow. And I don't think I even understood it that well, but I, yeah. I had a strong desire to see it. And your parents were apparently uh, willing to do that. Yes, I was spoiled. Apparently, yeah. Hey, do you have any siblings? I have two younger brothers. Uh, did they did they get their way as well, or uh, probably not as much? Uh huh. I was the first. Good <laughs> for them. <laughs> I, I was the wasp, and they were the bees. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, so should we move on to a different story? Yep. Sure. I was thinking the paper menagerie next because it is also kind of about animals. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I I love that story. I thought that was maybe the best one. I went back and read some of the comments after they posted it in Podcastle. Podcastle. All these people were like, dang it, it made me cry. <laughs> yeah, I found that moving. I think it's the most moving. You tweeted about it, Tam. Yeah, I said, call your mother. Listen to the story and call your mother. <laughs> I I texted her. I, I'm I'm a guy. I don't I I have trouble expressing my emotions. Oh. <laughs> Except anger. I can do anger. Mommy, read the story. This is about you. No, I just said I love you. Oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just like the little details of the beginning, like about the shark that fell apart in the water, and hmm. then she made a tinfoil shark. <laughs> that was cute. <laughs> yeah, I didn't like I didn't like the kids who came over either. The kid who came over and was with his Star Wars junk. Yeah. I wanted to punch that kid. Well, it reminded me of a lot of the stories I've read by like Jumba Lahiri about the first generation Americans, you know, from, from parents that have come here from other countries mm-hmm. and just the conflict they have trying to be American, but also having a heritage that isn't American is very much like that. Mm. But I think the little extras with the the animals that actually did things were nice. And it was nice that she'd left messages for him. Yep. You yeah. know, uh, sorry. Well, I, I was thinking you don't even need, like, the uh, fantastic parts of the story. I mean, just the story of the mother and the son is enough in itself. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, <laughs> I would say that that, that, that extra fantastic part... Uh, made it the only point worth reading i would say (laughs) because um uh emotional stories i mean i think all i don't think there was one that wasn't uh that doesn't work on an emotional level and i i prefer my stories maybe that's me but i prefer my stories to work on an intellectual level rather than only an emotional level and so like it's a very mm, this is the most mike resnicky story uh, of them all, I think. There's another mm-hmm. one that's pretty Mike Resnicky, you know, where he's, he's working the emotions, but, uh, I can't say I learned anything from this story other right. than people can be jerks, and I already knew that. So, mm-hmm. so, so, so <laughs> yeah, what does the paper menagerie animals add to it? Um, like a theme and embodied in the paper? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, um, it's, uh, it feels like sort of a magic realism exercise uh, that really worked. I, I mean, all of the stories feel to me very much like 
workshop stories. You know, they're, huh. uh, somebody says, okay, uh, you're going to write uh, about this and make sure it's emotionally impactive, right? And, and so it was, but I, I could feel myself being manipulated, you know, like, yeah. Uh, the kid is being uh, uh, inappropriately mean to his mom, uh, not caring about her dying. Um, and the wife is, uh, when he gets married, the wife is quite uh, reasonable and we like her, even though we don't see much of her. It's not really about her. She's she's a, a great influence upon his life. But we are, you know, torn. But I could feel myself being put in that position. Yeah, I didn't actually appreciate the ending. I thought it was almost a little harsh, kind of manufactured in a way. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's ending. a place I've been before. Yeah, well, because what they could have done was instead of it being you know about how he's such a tool and the <laughs> guilt, it could have just been like her gift to him. You know that. I mean, the idea that the animals are still there and still move around and everything proves that it wasn't just his imagination when he was little. Yeah. And it could have just been, I don't know, her presence within the animals. But instead, it's like, <laughs> by the way, you really uh, blew it. <laughs> <laughs> P.S. I'm dead and there's nothing you can do. <laughs> I, 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 I still like the story, but... Um... You know, it's it's like uh, I, I feel it's really well crafted. It's it's fun, um, but intellectual heft is is very lightweight. It's um, it's, and pa- so it's paperweight. It's paperweight. Yeah, good point. Um, but yeah, I, it was it was fun to to see, you know, a little bit of uh, folding paper action. <laughs> so, so was that real or was that uh, imagined? Well, uh, didn't 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 it happen? I don't know. Well, yeah, because it, and when he found them as an adult, they still were the same, and he would have been a complete skeptic by that point, right? Okay, yeah. maybe he was on E or something. <laughs> by the time he was a teenager, uh, it could make a really great short film. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a there's there's this. Uh, feeling I have when I uh, there, I'll watch a movie and I say, well, you know, it wouldn't make a very good story, but eh, it'll make an okay movie. This is a very good story, um, but it'd probably be an even better movie just because it is so uh, visual mm-hmm. and uh, you know could be easily manipulable. And um, it, I'm heaven for and me suggest that a story could be longer, but. I wouldn't necessarily be against seeing this uh, as a novel length universe just because wow. um, just because uh, it, it's working on a certain uh, path that's fine just don't you know clutter it up too much and it felt it felt uh, it felt it, it, I was very impressed by it. the it was good well written I'd definitely read another Ken Leo story oh yeah well and I think the most interesting story to me is the story they they just mentioned in passing the backstory about her childhood and how they would use the paper animals, you know, to swirl yeah. around people. And like, it sounded almost, maybe it was a, like a rebellion type thing. I want to hear that story. <laughs> uh, I, 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 you you know, I think it was well played out. Part of, part of that, part of that, uh, I think the magic realism part for me, at least, you know, that's sort of a, I don't know, Hispanic tradition, but, uh, maybe there's a you know Asian version of 
magic realism where she took uh, the mother said we put the uh the tigers i think it was out in the fields to eat the grasshoppers right mm-hmm. the paper tigers to chase the grasshoppers away and that's like putting the owl you know up on top of the roof of the uh home depot so the customers don't get pooped on by <laughs> by other birds well and they would make little dragons for new year and stuff too yeah yeah for, for the parades that's what I wanted to see. I mean, that's the part I could really see in my head. Yeah. Jenny, you've read those uh, Spanish magic realism books, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And I think that Murakami writes with a lot of magic realism. Okay. So there's there's your Asian magic realism. Okay. Yeah, maybe there's, maybe there's some uh, good investigations down that path. But this story is really, it's a, a Chinese immigrant. I mean, I had to keep reminding myself that because I kept getting origami in my head. And it, and maybe it is uh, origami, but yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Is there uh, origami no not idea. Chinese? Well, now it's I know. Japanese, sure. but I don't know. Uh, it means, yeah, it's Japanese. Mm-hmm. Paper folding, though, is probably... Uh, it's probably a bigger tradition. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Chinese paper folding, the art developed in China. Hmm. Well, I guess we learned something new. Yep. I, I think Jesse likes this because it's like Legos. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't see the connection, but it makes sense. I'm I'm in favor of building your own toys, absolutely. Um and I mean the the, the Star Wars action figure, I mean it, I could you could even see the manipulation, the heavy heavy, you know, hand pointing in the direction uh, there where it says it didn't even look like him and uh, it could only make three sounds and hmm. you know uh, yeah I, I mean I played with action uh, Star Wars action figures as a kid but they weren't the ones that can only you know move in two directions they were you can do more you can have the when the dog chews off the leg of the stormtrooper you just you just let, put a little carboning on it and say he got his foot shot off you know it's like you play you really play with your toys and mm-hmm. and make a world that's much better than you know i think i even know the the one they're talking about the obi-wan figure he can you press a button and he moves from left to right and swings his sword and says something it's really <laughs> lame really so you were you, you could have been the friend that came over <laughs> no actually because when i was a kid almost everybody had more toys than like that kind than I did, and I was always really jealous, hmm. always asking for for those kinds of toys. Oh. <laughs> Why? Yep. And then my Chinese immigrant mom, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> wow. You know, it's funny, because three of the five stories are really about children, or childhood. Mm. kind of interesting. So we can move to another one. Okay. Do you want to do the, the Cross Hill or the Fulda next? Oh, Mama, we are Zenya, your son. Zenya. Hey, Jesse, can you explain that to us? Yeah, please. Uh, <laughs> With your quantum mechanical brain. Red, uh, Stefan Rudnicki kicks ass, man. Yeah, he's awesome. I think, you know, if it's just based on narration, that's the best one. I am uh, Stefan Rudnicki. Well, he's just, he, he hit, he, he reads it well. Not just yeah. he has this awesome voice, but he really reads it well. And, uh, works works great as an audio, you know. Um, well, I don't know. I actually, I mean, I I really love 
him as a reader, but I think for this story, it confused me more because Sound there is punk? nothing about him that sounds like a five-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I went back and read the author's um, blog posts about the story and, you know, he very specifically says that Genya is a five-year-old. And okay, it's not he, an AI. I just, That's what I was Yeah, thinking. and I, I posted a link that we can put in the show notes of the Finnish version of the story um, because he really liked how the illustrator captured the boy. And so I looked at that picture and I was like, oh, okay, so this is helping me a little bit <laughs> <laughs> because I honestly didn't know who Genya really was. I was very okay. confused. Like, has why his... Yeah. Yeah. This, this one plays the least uh, to the emotions, uh, I, I think, compared to, um, you know, intel- it's more intellectual heavy than hefty than any of the other ones. Right. And we can think. tell it's quantum mechanics. We know that much. Yeah. We know that he's using his brain to do things. But what I don't really know is, is his brain doing things other than what he thinks? Or is it that they're experimenting with him? I really, I don't understand well, there's like a treasure box, like too. This. I guess somehow yeah. they work together to open quantum doorways to other dimensions. And it's almost like she's using him for that. And it's clear that he doesn't know what's really happening, but neither do I. <laughs> well, uh, we've got an unreliable narrator, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, who, when he starts off, he doesn't know what he's doing there. He, he's been sold into this job mm-hmm. um, by his mom. Uh, he gets to write. So that's his real mother? That he's trying to communicate with, yeah. I believe. I think so. Because yes. so. he's somewhere okay. away from her, and he's been told he has to write to her. Yeah, and true. you know they don't have enough rubles. That's right. So <laughs> I would, I would suggest that this this one lends a lot more. Uh, you know, some stories uh, will lend more reading. You know, you can go back and read it and get more out of it. This right. would be one of them. I'm actually am planning on listening to it again. But the uh, the the layer um, that is just on the surface. To me, uh, was very intriguing because it's, it's, you know, the shape of it is exactly like, uh, Flowers for Algernon, uh, which another one of these is, uh, Flowers for Algernon story as well. But, um, what we've got is a, a character who doesn't know what's going on, can't really do, uh, anything. And there's even a reference, uh, to Flowers for Algernon in here. Remember early on, uh, the, do- there was a dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, also doing the same job, um, and the dog is way better than, uh, yeah. <laughs> than the boy. Like he found at, the food right away. That's so. right, at doing the job, and and so um, we we're getting you know sort of letters of progress, progress reports, and um, so it it worked very well, I think. Except you know some sometimes um, you have to look at the size of the idea. And see, you know, how far it can go. So the idea, I think, is is right on the edge of, as you guys are noticing, being incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. Um, we get we get the reports, and they kind of make sense. So there's a cloud that comes and eats your head. Cool. Uh, what is that? Um, not exactly sure. Have some idea. Yeah. But what I would suggest is imagine, you know, you've got a piece of old-fashioned photography film. And um, uh, it's going to be exposed more than once. And there's a whole bunch of people coming to some place and doing something. And so I, I think somebody 
in one of the note uh, comments said something like um, uh, that that the story had used um, the idea that if you can breach a dimension and go get something from that dimension, well, of course, they could do it too in that other dimension. And so what you're seeing is he's he's uh, in that situation where a whole bunch of people who are like him or very similar to him are doing the exact same thing as he is. And so when they're all trying to, they've all got similar problems, some sort of food shortage, some sort of um, power shortage, some sort of uh, ecological disaster in the background of the story. Mm -hmm. um, When they come and eat your head, what they're doing is coming into your, the, the cloud of smoke, the smoke cloud or whatever comes and eats your head, comes in and takes what you have and, takes it back to them and there's so many competing forces it becomes fairly incomprehensible but um i think for a very incomprehensible uh, idea it's it's probably the right way to tell it from a kid's point of view so it keeps it relatively simple for us does that make yeah, sense that's yeah. a good way of looking at it yeah i thought they were like guardian bees that keep the quantum realities in balance or something i just kept thinking of a smoke monster from lost <laughs> Uh, well, I I didn't finish what lost. Uh, was that what did that turn out to be? Anybody uh, have any clue? Hmm. That's I watched the end and now I don't remember. <laughs> I didn't watch it. It didn't really answer a lot of questions. Yeah. Okay. So basically, <laughs> they the just title. Said, hey, that'd be cool. And then yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it it had it had something to do with when the different simultaneous dimensions intersected. So it's kind of similar, actually. And okay. that might make sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I... I the Lost think... had quantum realities? I think so. Oh, I didn't even know that. <laughs> well, I, didn't, I didn't watch it that much. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think this is a, a very good contender for, for being a memorable story. And, you know, Tom Crosshill, somebody to read more of. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I want to read and- his YA novel about singularities, robots, and superpowers. That's what uh <laughs> Yeah, sort of a singularity situation as well, though not in you know, not um intellectual singularity, it's a kind of um dimensional singularity. And you right. kind of wonder if he knows things that other people don't because he's operated a nuclear reactor before. <laughs> Homer Simpson. Yeah. Tom Tom Crosshill has? Yeah, that's what it says in his bio on his blog. Yeah, I think John Joseph Adams said that in the introduction. Mm. So why do you think he starts thinking of himself as plural? Because it, you know, in, in multiple at the beginning, dimensions at the same time or multiple places at the same yeah. time. He yeah, starts thinking I'm unsure of un- unsure of his um his own uh, his own identity at one point, and then becomes more sure of it. Um, and pluralizes it, right? Um, the dimensional um, tr- crossings, right? They're not physical. They're they are, uh, yeah. As you pointed out, in the there's a picture of the kid sitting, you know, with a I don't know, looks like a, he's having his hair dried, right? He's, <laughs> he's uh, journeying psychically or something, right? Um, so if that's true, he could be crossing into another dimension. Um, uh, into another person's body, and who would you cross into? Someone like you, right? Um, 
some yourself and so we are we are your son is technically correct I thought the whole idea of quantum physics was that you can be a particle can be in two places at once right yeah something like that twinned or, th- or rend or whatever yeah good story yeah, yeah I thought it was good so from here I want to go to movement by Nancy Fulda which is a story of a slightly older child and um, living with temporal autism. Mm-hmm. Is that how you would say it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a really interesting story to me, especially considering that we'd read um, Curious Dog of... Wait, Curious... What is the Dog in the Nighttime. Right. Which was a different perspective of autism, but... Um, and, and, and I don't know if temporal autism actually exists, but it was a really interesting version of it, I thought. And some of us have read Speed of Dark by Elizabeth Moon, so we're experts in autism. Oh, good. <laughs> so what do you think about this one, then? I don't believe, uh, if you were a true expert in autism, I don't believe you would say that, because uh, is, is he even supposed to be autistic? It's never Which mentioned it in, uh, in Speed of Dark, main character. Yeah, he's autistic, but in the future they have pills or whatever to make it easier. I don't. I don't think it's. Well, they certainly didn't say it in uh, the other one, the um, uh, the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. That was not. Uh, he was never explicitly said to be autistic. Ah, oh. um, Asperger's. It's never. It's never stated explicitly, um, but. Uh, it's certainly in that continuum, right? This is, this is, uh, a character who we get, we get inside her head. Mm-hmm. Um, and she answers all the questions that her, kind of mean in a way, right? <laughs> we get all the answers to the questions that the mom wants, that <laughs> the dad wants. And, uh, this is, I would say, the weakest story of the bunch because, it was very familiar to me for, you know, it is Flowers for Algernon completely, except it's unresolved. It's the curious dog of the, curious incident of the dog in the nighttime, and it's unresolved. Um, and it's, it's speed of dark, and it's unresolved. Uh, it also felt very workshopped, very workshopped, just like the other one, but didn't have the emotional impact. And it's also kind of all over the place. You know, we've got, We've got temporal autism, which we get is explained. There's also the. Well, what um, does that mean? Does, does she like see the future? No, she she. So uh, being autistic is like being in yourself, right? So she's asked a question: Do you want to have a new dress? What color do you want your new dress to be when you go dancing? Um, and the answer will come like three weeks later. Okay. Uh she's so she's in a slower reality than. Everybody else? Something like that, right? It, I mean, temporal autism, as far as I know, is not a real diagnosis. It's just what was put in here. And I believe, was this the story that also had reference to somebody in the 21st century who was just like her? Uh, somebody who... They mentioned Daniel Tamid, who right. discovered prime numbers or something, or he could imagine prime numbers. Is this a real person? Yeah. Okay. So this is a person who can identify... Uh, uh, prime numbers automatically. Right. right? He sees Just, them as uh, pebbles or something. Right. Ripples okay. in a pond. So, um, the analogy is not great because I don't see what the main character was uh, 
the main character is definitely different, and we see it from her perspective, but uh, it just didn't work for me. And the, the ending didn't work for me either, because it's, it's like, here's the story. No answers. Well, maybe that's because your your way of moving in time isn't the author's <laughs> way. <laughs> and maybe the story isn't done yet. <laughs> uh, the story I'm, is in a faster reality than I'm than being pretty harsh. <laughs> I'm being pretty harsh, but actually, I, I mean, it, it was a good story. Yeah. Uh, it just, it, you know, it, it's sort of like, yeah, it's been done before. And it, it didn't, uh, uh, you know, the paper menagerie has been done before. But at least it gave me some new uh, 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 wallpaper, and although it was uh, highly manipulative, I was still manipulated. Whereas right. first, you know, uh, with the Nancy Foldis, I was, I was, it, it was like I was supposed to be manipulated, and it's like, well, I'm not really feeling manipulated. I mean, in Speed of Dark, you're like, damn, though, that dude, you're getting. He's he's trying to hurt you. You don't even see it, right? You're sort of rooting for the the character. Here we're getting uh we're getting the answers that the parents want. So we don't see it from the parents' point of view. We can't say, "Oh, don't you know your your daughter wants this?" Right? Huh. Uh, and she didn't re- even know what she really wanted, right? And it ended in a place where she's not decided anything. Well, she she doesn't I- want new shoes. Yeah, she knows that. <laughs> well, the new shoes are, are the operation that would fix her uh, brain. What I'm saying, uh, well, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, not all ideas are equally fruitful. This is uh, an okay idea, um, but it's not big, and it well, didn't. It, it's written and it's finished, and it was okay, but it wasn't spectacular. It just kind of provides a different point of view. That's basically the. How, well, Jenny, what did you like about it so much? Well, I don't know. I just like the concept more than anything, I think. I'm not sure the story, you know, ultimately was that successful, but the idea was really interesting to me. And I, I could really, I mean, I know you're not hearing it from the parent's perspective, but I feel like because they treat her as someone who doesn't even communicate, they they talk about her issues with, like, like she's not in the room. Yeah. And she's processing all that information, even though it takes her a while. And so, I mean, they have some really hard decisions to make. They have to decide if they're going to do this really risky surgery for her. They're clearly frustrated and they want to be supportive and loving, but there's just, they just don't understand it. I mean, I, I could really understand their perspective in it, which I, I kind of liked that, but it wasn't my favorite. Yeah. Well, and what's yeah, with if the, you what- ask a person... You ask a person a question and they don't answer you for six months. Yeah. Mm. And what's with the bug killer on the father's shoulder? <laughs> it just says, it feels like a grab bag of other stuff. It's like they're trying it's in to, the future. Right. Yeah. They're trying to place it. Here's a future thing that would happen. <laughs> uh, see, uh, myself, I would just mount those on the roofs of houses rather than you know, carry around a bug zapper on my shoulder. What is he supposed to be the predator? You know, it's like. <laughs> Oh yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> it's it's just um, it, it it feels like a workshop story. You know, somebody says, "Okay, here's your exercise, children." Not children. <laughs> here's your exercise, students. Right? And they write, and then they say, "Okay, now I like what you've done here, but you haven't placed it in the future." Okay, bugs out. <laughs> Need more feels bugs. Like, it feels like uh, it's just not. Uh, it it it's it's finely written. 
but it's not expertly crafted. Um, and, you know, so I don't know. Anybody read any other Nancy Folda? Mm-mm. Okay. Well, uh, I kind of like that about the short stories, though. They're often authors I haven't heard of before. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, that's where they come from. They yeah. start with shorts and work their way out. I was just going to say about the author of Paper Menagerie, he's actually nominated in the novella category, too, and I haven't read it yet. But Oh, well, that uh, might be worth getting. Is that an audio version? I haven't looked, but um, nice that he got nominated twice in one year. Oh, that's a good sign. Nice. Yeah, I think the only so, author I've ever heard of it was, was E. Lily Yu. I think she was in another uh, collection of stories that we podcasted about. Yeah. Oh, okay. She must be pretty young, right? Because she's still a student. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, the other story is very creative, too. It's like about a gun or something in the far future. Okay. I forget huh. the title. That sounds good. Well, it was very literary. Thingy? One oh, left. One okay. left. One left. No, I texted, Tam- yeah, <laughs> I, I texted heard. Tama last night, and I basically said, in all caps, super creepy, do not want. He'll <laughs> 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 probably win. Ugh. It's horrifying. It's a, it's a, this is a horror story. Her Husband's Hands is the title. Yes, by Adam Troy Castro. And apparently his name wasn't originally hyphenated. Someone made that mistake in the student newspaper, and so he adopted it. <laughs> hey, that's catchy. I thought that was funny. Yeah. Okay, so the basic idea is that the army has decided to start bringing back pieces of soldiers that die and reanimating them basically so that they can live with their families forever. It's a good word. I, I, I guess I thought of that, but I for, I'd forgotten. Yeah. It's reanimator. Yeah. <laughs> it's chiller theater. And so she ends up with her husband's hands. And somehow and the hands have memories and the hands can see. Yes. Yes. And they can communicate by typing if you yeah. are put in a specific sleeve. And so he can tell her things about how much he loves her and misses her and wants her. And she's like sitting there looking at a pair of hands being completely disgusted. <laughs> yeah. So it, it is a horror story. It, it you is. Know, and it, I think he does. He, you know, Adam Troy Castro tries to give us the gross out uh, feeling of, oh, my God, disembodied this, you know, just that. Ooh, it's horrible. But also, you know, and th- that works for the for the, the story. But it's also uh, it's totally allegorical, right? It's the most allegorical and I guess, therefore, most science fiction in a way as well, because it's <laughs> this is really happening in real life, except. It's not the hands that are coming back. It's the bodies, uh, you know, the heads with torsos and, and missing limbs and missing, you know, missing faces and stuff. So, so it's an anti-war tale. Right. And so the question is, what would you prefer someone to just be gone from your life completely or would you prefer part of them? <laughs> well, uh, what's the story's answer? <laughs> Well, at the end, that's a very hot scene between a pair of hands and a woman. So I think that explains it. Uh-huh. Uh, I was going to say this was a paranormal romance. Kind <laughs> of. Um, yeah, it was like, well. a <laughs> for a wife, right? He's got a suitcase, and inside there's some guts. Right. Um, so... Uh, Again, you know, I'm not one for expanding story ideas, and I don't think this is a one that could be well expanded. But um, 
it's really what really wasn't addressed is uh they're robots with little grafts on right they're mm-hmm. robots they're they're uh ai copies of people um and that's not what the story focus is that's deliberately not put in the direction of uh if your wife died in an accident would you want her backup uh put into a cyborg body right a backup of her mind and that's not where the story goes it's it is about war and uh, dealing with people who've been injured in it well and the hands apparently are suffering from post traumatic stress disorder because when they are sleeping they try to kill her that's not good <laughs> i mean talk about horror mm. we're giving you this person and not only is it only part of the person that you loved it's a damaged part although how do you get all leverage he can remember you... is like eight days right yeah how do you I get mean, leverage it... when you're stra- surrounding someone you're, you're just a pair of hands yeah yeah, it's a scientific mystery. <laughs> well, uh, have you, uh, either of you seen the Michael Caine movie called The Hand? Uh-uh. Uh, I'm a big fan of Michael Caine movies. Uh, he's, he's in lots of terrible movies. Also in lots of great movies. This is an early 80s movie, uh, maybe 1980, uh, about a guy who, I think he's driving down the highway, sticks his hand out the window, and it gets lopped off by a passing car or something like that. And and then it comes back to him, you know, <laughs> crawls back through the woods or whatever. Um, and it's haunting him. Um, and it's based on a Guy de Montpassant short story called The Flayed Hand, which also has... Of course it is. <laughs> uh, right. So it has a sort of... Uh, I mean, you, you couldn't tell, really, by looking at the movie, because it's got all sorts of other stuff going on in it. But um, the, it, it's actually about a cartoonist. He's a cartoonist, um, and he loses his hand, uh, and so he's he's frustrated. Blah blah blah. So, what we're seeing in this story is is kind of like the science. You know, what if it was scientific instead of the thing and added the war? And so, eh, it's okay, but not not spectacular. So, so it's a creepy change of pace for when you're reading a whole bunch of stories. Yeah, it kind of jumps out at you. I was going to say that if you enjoyed the ending, then you should probably read <laughs> House of Holes by Nicholson Baker, the subtitle being A Book of Ranch, because the first story in that book, um, let's just say it features Dave's arm. And it's disembodied? Yep. Okay. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. I, I was going to mention Theodore Sturgeon's Bianca's Hands, which was podcast on mm. Spider Robinson's podcast. Yeah, I mean the about. hands are on someone's body, but there's like a weird fixation on them, and I guess the hands have a mind of their own somehow. It's kind of a weird, creepy story, but there's no like gore or anything. Yeah, but it has yes. a weird hand. You're reading finish. a lot of Theodore Sturgeon late, lately, aren't you? Yes. Yeah, I finished uh, To Marry Medusa. He, he, I, I hadn't thought of it before, but he is kind of a a horror guy in a way. Um, I mean, a lot of his stuff. Uh, I was just thinking about it. Uh, you know, the story It, it's a kind of a Swamp Things kind of story. Uh, That's not Stephen King? No. Oh. Uh, no, no, no. Short story from oh. 1940 or so. Um, but yeah, and he, he's, uh, he, there's, there's another one he wrote, um, the title's eluding me, but it's, uh, three people, I believe, are killed in a, 
an accident on landing on Mars or something like that. And they, uh, they find themselves alive inside a jelly mold or something. <laughs> um, with one's got the brains and one's got the eyes and one's got the, the taste buds and they have to work together. I think it, it was expanded into a novel. And so it's a kind of a horror story as well where people, uh, are not what they were. Their bodies have been. Yeah. Well, he does a lot of horror stories. There's one, one Spider Robinson did with, uh, <laughs> it's a comedy, but it is kind of a horror story too. Uh, it's called Prusy's Pot. In which uh, a uh, a toilet lives. Uh, there's a monster or something that lives under the toilet and eats your poo, and it it wipes your ass for you too. <laughs> yeah, I, I keep trying to listen to that, but it's so noisy. I, I can't make heads or tails of it. Yeah, it's not not. Uh, it's not like a recording of him reading it live at a convention or something, and it's really noisy. I think Spider Robinson did uh, a recording of it as well. Oh, oh, good. I'll check that out. Yeah, it's on the side somewhere, I think. Maybe, maybe it's maybe it's the same one. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of, but maybe not. Maybe Jenny and I can discuss it some other time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, creepy. <laughs> no want. <laughs> Do not want. Um, I was gonna say that the day we're recording this podcast, they're also going to be nominating or announcing the nominations for the Hugo Award. So Uh-oh. it's always interesting to me to see which short stories end up nominated for both, there's always something that's shared. So, so if that, you were going to pick pick a winner for the Nebula short stories of the five, which one would you guys pick? Uh, which one would we pick and which one do we think will win? What, you think yeah. there's a difference? Yeah, say both if you'd like. Uh, of the ones that were podcast uh, and the ones that I could hear, <laughs> um, I think that the Mama, We Are Zenya, Your Son, is going to win, and I also think it's the best one. Hmm. Um, I think it's going to win because Stefan Rudnicki really kicks ass, and I think that makes a big difference. So, uh, you know, although I don't think the voters necessarily will hear the audio, right? I so. I think that 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 is just um, not as true as you want it to be. Oh, <laughs> I, well, think, I I think more people listen to uh, the audio than than read the text now. Oh, okay, good. I, I, the reason I think that is just because it, it's it, in the past people had the option to read it, not read it, and still vote. Right, read it, not read it, and still vote. Mm-hmm. And because uh, you just have to be a member of the SFWA to be a voter, right? Um, having read it. Uh, you can make a decision, but when you've got uh, seven stories to choose from, um, you're probably going to do the listening and then choose from those. Just because you've got a lot of other stuff to do, right? Hmm. And it's easier, and if you like one, you can go back and do it. But I, I think it's really going to hurt uh, Lily Yu's uh, chances because it's such a, such a quiet one. Hmm. And use the Amplifier plugin from Audacity. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to amplify it you know just just um or they could uh, just not read anything it. and vote for their favorite author which i hear happens well, that, that happens too i'm sure yeah um what about you uh tam i i, I yeah i think the uh paper menagerie is the most moving although i'm not even sure it's a, a fantasy story but i found it the most uh relatable 
of all it's of these. It's right up there. That's a great, 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 great story. So you, you think you'd vote for the same one to be your favorite as to win? Um, hmm. I'm going to say the B one will win because it's very literary and Jenny, <laughs> it's, it's a Jenny story. <laughs> yeah. But that's not my favorite I, story. Go ahead. Oh, I think that, I mean, the cartographer wasps and the anarchist bees is definitely my favorite, but I kind of think the paper menagerie might win. I don't know. It'll be interesting it's, to it's see. It's emotionally resonant. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, People and last like year, I can't remember if it was the Hugo or the Nebula, but last year, a story that was kind of emotional that had to do with ponies won. Do you remember that? No. I can't remember which one it won. Did the pony die? Like it was a story by Kiz Johnson. You you would need to read it. Uh, I read that sex one by Kiz Johnson. Oh, yeah. That was the year before. Yeah, where she's with the alien in the spaceship and they just have sex the whole time. Yeah. Seems to be a theme for the Nebula nominees. <laughs> <laughs> well, if that's true, then which one of these win? It's her husband's hands. <laughs> well, and, you know, that one does have that kind of twist at the end that sometimes people really like, so... Hard to know. I, I think it's too weird to actually win. Hmm. It's not mainstream enough. Yeah. Now here, here's an alt. Oh, Jenny, what's your what's your one? Before I. Oh, I already said. Oh, yeah. Sorry, the cartographer. Cartographer. But did you say which one you thought it was going to win as well? No, I think Paper Menagerie will win. All right. All right. So. How about this one? This is a more interesting question, I think, for me. Which one of these stories, or which ones of these stories do you think will still be talked about in 10 years? Will still be referenced? Yeah, that's always a good question. Will still be, hey, you got to read this. You haven't read that? Oh, my God. Are there a lot of short stories that are actually talked about years later? Uh, yeah, my whole website's about that, dude. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it seems like me, people remember novels more than, I mean, it's not right, but it's it true. Like people remember it, novels more than short stories. But even so, they, you know, uh, there was uh, short stories are they're even more than they were. They are merely writing exercises now, I think. And so I would say none of these are going to be remembered in ten years. I think Paper Menagerie is certainly worth reading, but um, I don't think it's it's amazing enough to to still be you know oh my god you got to it's it's a uh, sort of just it's a writing act. These are all, you know, working the craft and getting up to speed so you can write novels. Huh. Is my way of looking at it. I don't think any of them are. Do you? Maybe we can't tell until, like, ten years have passed by. I think that that's true. Yeah. But but we, we can certainly have a guess at it. Mm -hmm. I think, like, like you said, if the paper menagerie were made into some kind of film... Animated. Then... Yeah, it would. I think it would reach more people, and so then people would go back to the story. It would be, uh, you know, as a Disney film, it would be uh, very colorful. Uh, you know, it could be just like a stop motion, motion animation. You know, yeah. absolutely. Doesn't, I'm not even saying it has to be a. You know, I, I, I'd like a YouTube video version of it. I think that that it is emotionally resonant in the way that Hollywood movies uh, are very good at emotionally manipulating you, you know, promoting conservative values, uh, despite, um, despite the, uh, <laughs> the, the rebellious characters, right? Well, right. I mean, it's kind of basically Toy Story 3 meets 
than immigrant experience. And that's an important theme. So I think it could work. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I think that it, it probably more than any of the other stories combines a theme that's more universal than the others do. I mean, other than the anti-war kind of sentiment. So uh, I would say that, that it has the best chance. And part of that is, you know, Tam tweeting about it. Yeah, that's right. And your, your tweeting, Jenny, or your texting, Jenny, um, is negative, right? It was like, oh, <laughs> this story is creeping me up. Um, that's, that's not, it's not creepy enough to, um, to be, you know, 50 years down the road, they're still going to say, oh my God, it was so creepy. Yeah. And you know, actually, if it had ended a different way, I think if I had kept feeling that it was creepy instead of just kind of laughing at the end, you know, I think it would have had more power. Yeah. But instead, it kind of turns into a joke almost. Well, I, it's a ridic it's a ridiculous story premise. So uh, it's totally allegorical, right? And the problem is, is the allegory is not fully. Uh, there's no, there's no lesson. There's no takeaway. It's just we've got a bit of creepy, and then oh, it's not so bad uh, to have sex with your husband's hands or whatever. Yeah, I mean <laughs> the ending kind of ruins it. <laughs> So better to live with it just as horror than yeah. But uh, I want to check out the cartographer's uh, cartographer wasps and the anarchist bees just because um, it sounds interesting. So I can't really judge that one very well. But I just couldn't hear it. It was too right. Quiet. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> she was. It was like she was whispering it to you intimately. <laughs> uh, seriously, people, you have to consider where people are going to be listening to your podcasts. It definitely wouldn't work in a car. It, it didn't work walking around the streets. Yeah, with with earbuds in. Huh. Unless you got noise canceling earbuds or something. I, I don't. I don't understand, Jenny. Oh, you're a librarian. That's why you're in a library. <laughs> well, I don't listen there. to it at work. I just listen to it at home. But very, I, I think maybe home. since I huff duffed it and then pulled it in through Podcaster. I mean, between some of those programs, they must have, you know, equalized it up or something. Oh. I didn't change anything deliberately. I have stuffed it and it, I, I put the setting to maximum and it was still way too quiet. Huh. I had to listen to it twice and I didn't get most of it. Yeah, yeah. it's a it's a kind of story that you have to concentrate on too. So um, just because of the language, she's got a she, the narrator, the host has got a quiet voice, um, mm. which you know it's fine, but uh, you gotta increase your volume. Terrible. I think the only other thing we're doing with the nebula probably is we're going to have a discussion of among others. Are you guys going to do that one? When is it's, a, it's a great audio book because of the accent. It's just, very sexy it's Welsh accent. <laughs> I don't know about sexy, but it, it really makes the story because you, you kind of hear the, the girl in it, you know, I think we're doing it maybe the hey. same weekend that the nebulas get announced. So, Oh yeah. Okay. I'd rather have Highland than a headmistress. That is that your Welsh accent? It's ten hours Aye. or something like that. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't too, too bad long. at all. Yeah. No, it's all about her liking science fiction. Yeah, that's, that's why I want likes. Jesse to read it because yeah. it's, it's basically a chance for the author to. Yeah. Yeah, I'm up for it. Right. Yeah, yeah Joe Walton said she would. Uh, that's the author. She said she would uh, get the rights to all the uh, Hugo-nominated uh, novellas and then post them on Tor.com. So I'm waiting for that to come out. Oh, she, good. she already did a series on all the Hugo award-winning novels up to the year 2000, and that was pretty good. 
So no guess, audio for those, right? Uh, not that I, I, I actually suggest I tried to suggest that to her, but as far as I know, they're not going to do audio. Terrible. So, what do you guys think about using award nominations as an indicator of, you know, what the best stories are? Because you know, I read that best science fiction and fantasy of 2011, and two of the stories were the same, but of course, there were 18 other stories in the book that weren't nominated. It's a joke. <laughs> that's that's it's not best. The best stories are determined by the you know the history and the usage of the stories. It's you know it's people going back and checking them out. It's people saying, "Oh my God, this is still awesome. It was awesome then. It's awesome now." Right? Um, and I think it, it, it used to be uh, if you if uh, I was was it no, it wasn't Tam. I was uh, somebody. I was telling yesterday. Uh, I was looking at a, a copy of F, FNSF from 1953. It had stories by Theodore Sturgeon, uh, Mac Reynolds, uh, five or six other famous science fiction authors. Um, and I'm sure some of them weren't that great, but they were all published in a magazine where there was 10 other magazines on the shelves and they were all published in there. Now today, there aren't that many magazines. There's a lot more websites, mm-hmm. but those people were writing this for money, for a living, a lot of them. Um, and there was a lot of crappy stories back then. There's still a lot of crappy stories now. But the difference is they were writing those as professionals, not as amateurs trying to become professional novelists. I think that we've moved so far towards novels being the dominant... Uh, sorry, not even novels, series being the dominant form of writing for professionals that the exercise of writing short stories is is considered as, you know, the way you build your craft and the way you showcase your your voice rather than as a uh, I'm talking like an old man. Oh, well, <laughs> get off my lawn. Get off my lawn, you you damn nebula winners. I mean, I I don't pick, I don't pick books according to an award. I, I pick it according to like, I guess, uh, friends on Goodreads. Like, I like to see like a, a paragraph long short review. And then if there's things in there that I would probably like, and if that person shares my taste, then I'll, I'll check the book out. But just but like no, an on off switch of, just said book, that, right? You didn't even say story. <laughs> well, it could be, it <laughs> could apply the, to short stories too. Yeah, but they, they don't do short story. I mean, it's the focus even on, I mean, there are short stories on Goodreads, but the focus is novels. Right. And the focus is. Yeah, it'd be nice if there was a Goodreads for short stories. Audible, if you look on Audible, it's, it's like series. There's very few books that aren't, you know, book three or book four coming out any given week. Book seven. Yeah, the bookstores are like that too. It's all series. What do you, what do you think, Jenny? Are you as jaded? Well, I mean, I'm a much newer reader of science fiction than you guys are. So um, for me, still, I'm still trying to kind of get a perspective on it. So I sometimes use the nominees as a, oh, I haven't ever read this author. This is a good opportunity. Or I haven't ever read this type of subgenre. So it's a good opportunity. And I kind of branch out that way. But I mean, I I don't know if you guys saw the, the story about Christopher Priest and what he said about the Arthur C. Clarke shortlist. Yeah, yes. I heard yeah. So it. that kind of idea has been floating yeah. around in my head a lot. You know, what do award winners mean, and um, how else can we figure out what good is and what we should be reading? Because obviously, with all these people self-publishing short stories, it's really hard to know, you know, which things to read next. And 
that's why we have SFF audio. <laughs> Didn't you? Did you guys see my post yesterday? I did two posts about the Neil Gaiman story. Yes. Now that was uh, after 1950. Uh, amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like authors after 1950, but, mm-hmm. uh, but you know what? It's not even charitable because up to up to 60 is is when uh, is the sweet spot. I see 1950 to 1960 is the sweet spot for short stories and. Uh, novelettes and novellas and that sort of thing. Um, I think pa- paperback novels get really good in the 60s and 70s. Uh, really good in the, and just like movies get really good in the 70s. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of movies in the 50s, but, um, and 80s are actually really good for movies too, but, um, right now we're in series world. <laughs> and in series world, it's not so hot, but check out, that collection is so cool. Um, stories uh, by Neil Gaiman and Al Sarantino, I think is his name, is a collection of non-genre story, non-genre authors, uh, just wow. authors, um, with some sort of uh, fantastic element, perhaps, or magical element, perhaps, in them. And, you know... The introduction to that collection, which is available, I think, on uh, for reading, you know, as a preview, is very good. And Neil Gaiman talks about how uh, he loves fantasy collections and he loves this collection. But really, what he likes is stories. It doesn't matter what genre they're in. Um, he likes good stories. And that's what I like, too. And I just think that there are uh, a lot of great stories out there. But very uh, few of them are are a lot, you know, being produced this year. So Neil Gaiman is a fantasy master, on par with any fantasy author in history. You know, H.P. Lovecraft or uh, Robert E. Howard or J.R.R. Tolkien. I think he's a fantastic fantasy author. But I don't really care what genre he writes in, as long as he keeps writing, because he writes really good stuff. That story. Uh, the cave, what's it called? The cave, uh, the truth is a cave in the Black Mountains. Fantastic. <laughs> I listened to it, uh, once, started listening to it again, then it said, oh crap, I gotta listen to these nebulous stories. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So the contrast was startling for you. <laughs> uh, well, you know what? You, you know you're in the hands of a master, uh, when you're reading a Neil Gaiman story, and it, it is fantastic. Um, he, I think somebody commented on, on the story saying, you know, uh, you can tell Neil Gaiman can create a whole world in one sentence. And he does. And yet we don't know much. I don't, I think it's supposed to be set in Scotland from like 200 years ago. I'm not even sure who, if the main character is supposed to be like a, a gnome or what, but it's a, it's a wonderful story. And, oh, um, uh, when Scott was at that uh, horror convention, he said, uh, Joe, Joe Lansdale said, a novel is an easy way to write a short story. Yeah. It takes a lot of craft to write something so short and have it have a lot of impact. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. 